This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Think about this. How would history read if it wasn't from the grand narrative of those in power, but just as it happened, including all the warts? And since there are so many books that highlight the grand narrative, then we don't need a repeat of what we already know. What we might then need to balance out all that we think we already know is a book that highlights all the warts. And that's exactly what a people's history of the United States by Howard Zinn sets out to do. This is why any list of books to cover for the Big Ideas series would have to include this book. It's that important. There are people who have read this book and those who have not. And based on that difference, you have a different worldview. And that's the point of Big Ideas. There's you before these ideas, and there's you after. Now, this book is massive, as many history books are. If you were reading this for school, you'd probably spend a whole year on this book. So to do this book justice, I have to break it up into three parts. What I am presenting to you now is part one of A People's History of the United States by Howard Zinn, a history book from the perspective of the people, not from feudal overlords or from the government, but how it really felt to live through those times. The book starts with Christopher Columbus. And Zen compares what we've been taught to what actually took place, what Columbus actually did. And the non-PC actual history is pretty brutal. We read about Columbus, gave him a holiday, made him a hero. But how much of what he did did you read from his own account, from his own personal records? So what did Columbus say when he encountered the Arawak people of the Bahamas? Columbus writes, quote, They brought us parrots and balls of cotton and spears and many other things, which they exchanged for glass beads and hawksbells. They willingly traded everything they owned. They were well built, with good bodies and handsome features. They do not bear arms and do not know them. For I showed them a sword. They took it by the edge and cut themselves out of ignorance. They have no iron. Their spears are made of cane. They would make fine servants. With 50 men, we could subjugate them all and make them do whatever we want. End quote. So when running into a kind and good-intentioned people, his first thought was of slavery. I mean, what the fuck? But that's what Columbus did. He forced the native people to lead him to gold. And these are islands, mind you. There are very few natural resources, and the Europeans took everything, enslaving the inhabitants and raping the women. Columbus writes, As soon as I arrived in the Indies, on the first island which I found, I took some of the natives by force in order that they might learn and might give me information of whatever there is in these parts. End quote. 
If you couldn't produce gold or copper, well then off with your hands, or even worse, with your head. In a three-month period, 7,000 children died in the mines. By 1515, 250,000 Arawaks had been culled to 50,000. By 1515, that number was down to 500. By 1650, there were no more Arawaks. Forget our feelings. If this is what happened, this is what happened. And history must report that. And when we learn history, we must learn what really happened in spite of our feelings. Our feelings shouldn't rewrite history, but that's what it does. And what Columbus did to the Arawaks of the Bahamas, Cortez did to the Aztecs of Mexico, Pizarro to the Incas of Peru, and the English settlers of Virginia and Massachusetts to the Poetans and the Pequots. And believe it or not, history books like to brush past genocides. It's a weird thing because you would think that's a pretty big deal. Edmund Morgan in American Slavery, American Freedom writes, quote, Since the Indians were better woodsmen than the English and virtually impossible to track down, the method was to feign peaceful intentions, let them settle down and plant their corn wherever they chose, and then, just before harvest, fall upon them, killing as many as possible and burning the corn. End quote. The Iroquois that lived in modern-day New York and Pennsylvania used to own the land communally. They were experts at agriculture. So everyone owned the land and worked the land. Because to be successful in this environment, it was all hands on deck. No owners, no servants, and no homeless. In America, red, white, and black, Gary Nash writes, quote, Power was shared between the sexes, and the European idea of male dominancy and female subordination in all things was conspicuously absent in Iroquois society. End quote. The Europeans found this egalitarian society absurd, and this made it easier to rationalize the subjugation of the Iroquois people. These were primitive barbarians with their equal society. And since the Iroquois resisted against subjugation, this led to war. But think about how this is typically portrayed. Someone is trying to make you a slave, you resist, and history paints both of you as being equally wrong. That's like back in school. A kid bullies you, you stand up for yourself, and you both get in trouble equally. And that sort of thing does happen. But you remember that feeling, right? How messed up was that? Because it wasn't equal. You already understood the concept of false equivalence, that these two things are not the same. He's attacking, I'm defending. But history, much like your principle, might not know the difference. This concludes the preview of part one to A People's History of the United States. To listen to this bonus episode in its entirety, please become a monthly sponsor of this show on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. I'll include a link in the show notes.